today's guest I am thrilled to have on. He is, he's human. Um, he's conservative and uh, he's who I want to be when I grow up. He is brilliant. He is a commentator, a novelist in multiple genres, best-selling author, screenwriter, radio playwright, and the winner of the Edgar Award. I don't know who Edgar is, but I bet it's better than Oscar, whoever he was. He's so good that he made a career in Hollywood as a conservative. And they started getting dicey. His true crime book was turned into a movie directed by Clint Eastwood. Other films based on his book have featured an impressive array of actors and directors. His most recent project is The Covenant, an upcoming multi-season TV series that shows us the stories of the Old Testament without the Hollywood influence. His latest book, The Truth and Beauty, is a look into how poetry can inform our relationship with God. Poetry. I mean, we're down to this. That's what I thought before I spoke to one of my heroes, Andrew Clavin. Abortion is the leading cause of death in the U.S. and the world. Since Roe v. Wade, 63 million babies have been killed just here in the U.S. Nearly one in four pregnancies don't choose life. In the midst of all of this, we have to do something about it. What are we going to do? Well, we found the Ministry of Preborn, and Blaze Media has partnered to help them rescue babies from abortion in 2022. Preborn is the direct competition to Planned Parenthood and the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the U.S. And by letting women see their baby on an ultrasound and hear the heartbeat, they're 80% more likely to choose life for their baby. That's a remarkable thing. Preborn has a passion to save unborn babies from abortion and see women come to Christ. And over the past 15 years, preborn centers have counseled over 340,000 women that were considering abortion. More than 169,000 babies have been saved. Holy cow. What did you do with your day, dear? I was in a meeting. That's a remarkable thing. Here's the thing. You are the answer. You are the hero of every preborn baby in this nation and the ambassador for eternal life for every mom, dad, and family that walks in to every preborn partner clinic. You can help rescue babies. Donate pound 250. Say the keyword baby. Just hit pound 250 keyword baby, or you can go to preborn.com slash Glenn. How are you? Good to see you. Good to see you. It's been a long time since we've actually sat in the same room. I think I saw you in Los Angeles last time. That's a long time ago. Yeah, it's yeah. now years. I uh, I don't know how many people I have told when people say, tell me interesting people that you've met or, you know, who's really stuck out? And I say, always Andrew Clavin oh. is not only intimidating because he's so smart, <laughs> um, but he is also... One of the most honest and genuine people I Oh, that's I very know. kind of you. Yeah. Coming from you, that's a great compliment. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that. I, I, 
I was, I, I'll never forget when we first sat down, or we actually were at a friend's house. Yeah. We were having dinner. And you came up to me sheepishly. Do you remember? Yes, I do. I do. Will you tell the story? Well, this was something that ate at me for, it must have been over a year, when I started doing my podcast for The Daily Wire. I was completely inexperienced, and I was making jokes, my usual kind of, uh, you know, funny stuff, and I made a couple of jokes about you. They were jokes that I have made to your face. They are jokes that I made on The Blaze. When you started The Blaze, you hired me to do satirical things, and I used to do these jokes about how crazy you are, and I would say say to your staff, is is Glenn going to mind my calling him crazy? No, he knows he's crazy. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, so I did it. I urge people to make fun of me. <laughs> so you do. You've yeah. always been. Yeah. So I did it on the air, but you weren't there to laugh. So afterwards, I thought, you know, that really sounded like I was dissing a guy that I and I. You know, I'm not flattering you. You know, I think you're one of the greatest broadcasters yeah. of the age. You know. And I thought, I, I, you know, because it, it, it caught up with me. It took about a month. And then I started to think, you know, that, I hated that. And then I was going to write to you. And I thought, no, you know, that was a, a bad thing to do. You did it in public. That's you got to walk up to him face to face. So yeah. a year later, oh, it, it ate easy. Me. Yeah. And you came up to me. I had no idea <laughs> yeah, about it. I just remember I thinking. Just on my mind. Yeah, yeah. I remember thinking, relax. Dude. You wouldn't believe what's been said about me. <laughs> Whatever yeah, but, you but, thought. But I like you. you know? <laughs> I, I, I will tell you that not a lot of people have that kind of integrity. Oh, well, I, it, it really does. You know, you. I want to be. The thing is, my life has all been words. It's writing words. Now it's talking words. If the words coming out of my mouth are not saying what I mean them to say, or they're not true. That's what keeps me up at night. That yeah. is the thing that really makes me think I'm, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. You know? That is, um, words have real power. Real power. Yes. And they, and they are, I won't speak for women, but for a man, his word, if his word isn't good, what is he, you know? Somebody asked me just the other day, what is the, what's the thing that has been said about you does any of it bother you? And if so, what is the worst thing? And uh, I said, when people uh, question, he's got a, he doesn't believe that. He's got an ulterior motive, whatever. Because I've worked so hard to keep my word. <laughs> no. Right? Yes, yes. And that's the first thing every, your opponents always say. Always say. Like, you're doing it for the money. You're doing it yeah. for this. You're doing it. Yeah. And you're... Mm-hmm. And, when you really, when you really are, try to be careful with your words, yeah. when you really have true intent of trying to do good, it's crushing because it's the only thing that you really own. Your yeah. words are the only thing that you really own. Yes, and and you know, I mean, I'm sure this is true of you. I've, I've lost a lot of money by my words. I've lost oh, yeah. jobs and I've been blacklisted <laughs> yeah. and all mm-hmm. these these things. And so you're. It's kind of nuts when somebody disagrees with you. Just say you disagree. This is why. Instead of, you know, oh, you're just doing this because, you know, Ben Shapiro told you to or whatever it is they say, Uh, because it it is offensive. I mean, at this point, I figure my reputation walks in front of me like anybody who knows me knows that it ain't so. Yeah. uh, Including including Ben, because I drive him crazy. (laughs) (laughs) That is an amazing think tank you guys have there. It's amazing. It really is. And we started in a a place that looked like this. You know, we started. Table. <laughs> he started in, the, in Jeremy Boring's pool house. Uh, me and Ben just doing podcasts on a card table. I remember. Yeah, I and remember. Uh, it it 
it took five, six years, and it yeah. was huge. Yeah. There was a moment where we were going to we were going to merge. That's together. right. That's yeah. right. But then you you scuttled that and went to the blaze. No, I don't think that's <laughs> that's not my recollection. But uh, I, I will tell you that it is. Uh, I was so disappointed in one thing. I love the fact that you all get together and you all just talk about things. Oh, that's and great. It's, that was you know that's the one thing because you know everybody's a lot of the people work out of Dallas. Some of them, uh, Crowder works, you know, yeah. 45 minutes away. You know, Mark is up in uh, Virginia. And so we don't have that chance to sit around and just be a brain trust. And that is, that's great. It was an amazing experience, especially as it was coming up because we were all kind of packed together in a little space and then Trump came along and there's so much to talk about so much to figure out nobody had ever seen anything like him before we were yelling at each other screaming at each other but it was all very friendly and it was all it helps you think you know it's yeah. it, I mean part of thinking is talking you know is yeah. it, conversation which is one of the problems in our country right now is nobody right. talks to one another right and if if you can't talk if you can't question what are we that really you know you, you can't you cannot move without yeah. questioning yeah. the one thing um that I want uh, that I think makes you different is um, that you are uh, a God guy. You're a deep <laughs> philosophical guy. You've written. Uh, I've got to get to this book, but you've written the truth and beauty. And, uh, you know, usually, usually when I'm reading my books on, you know, the romantic poets, <laughs> which I never do. Uh, But you say that through poetry, you can come closer to God and the scriptures. Oh, no question about it. These poets specifically, these are the romantic poets for a brief period on that little island of England, six of the greatest poets who ever lived, Keats and Shelley and Wordsworth and Coleridge and Byron, were all living at the same moment, all writing in the same moment. And they were writing in a moment which was incredibly like this one. Uh, we had, they had the French Revolution, but we had the 60s where everything changed. We mm-hmm. thought it was going to be paradise. It all collapsed. It all became a terror. It became, for us, it became the Cold War. For them, it became the Napoleonic War. And it was all surrounding this issue of faith, the fact that faith had gone out of the world. And these poets were basically trying to say, if, if the age of reason has led to a reign of terror, what did we do wrong? You know, mm. Wordsworth was a big supporter of the revolution. And then it just became a bloodletting. And he said, what do we do wrong? And, and he start, they started to deal with the fact that God had gone out of the world. They didn't always know Coleridge, who was the brightest of them, always knew. And so when I went back, I became a Christian, as you know, late in life. I was almost 50. And when that happens and you're not a cradle Christian, you look at some of this stuff in the gospel, you think like, I don't know what this guy is talking about. You know, he says, turn the other cheek. Should I? I mean, is that if, if like somebody slugs me, am I really going to turn the other cheek or am I going to deck him? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, and you start to think, well, what is he talking about? And so I thought I'm going to go find it, see if I can find out. I'm going to put everything out of my mind. Just read Jesus as Jesus. No, Paul, no Paul, no theology, nothing. I taught myself Greek badly, and I, I started reading it in the Greek. You're very, you're very Jefferson. <laughs> I'm very uh, uh, a dogged. I'm dogged. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I taught myself Greek. Yeah, well, I taught myself Pig Latin. So, <laughs> but I started reading this, and I thought. 
This is all the stuff that's in the Romantics. The stuff that Jesus is saying is the stuff that's in these great poems. Jesus was actually telling us something. He was actually teaching us a way to look at the world that would do what he said. He said, well, the joy that's in me, he said, will be in you. And that's been my experience of Christianity. It has made me a much more joyful, much more serene mm-hmm. person. Me too. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's like magic. It's kind of strange. Yeah. It's, I mean, you know, Jordan Peterson, he talks about the, you know, the importance of salvation and forgiveness. Yeah. Uh, you, there's nothing that replaces that. Nothing. I mean, it, it is, yeah. you know, I, I believe and I know what redemption has done to my life. I mean, it's changed me fundamentally. Um, but, you know, people will be atheists and they'll say, you know what? I know it's work for me. And even if it's a giant con and I believe it and therefore I'm a better human being, I'm great with that. You know, if I wake up and it's just dirt around me, I'm like, ah, crap. You know what I mean? But... It's fundamentally changed me. It, cha- it, it And it changes you every time. This is one of the issues that I was dealing with. Every time I understand it a little better, yeah. my life gets more joyful. Yeah. You know? And when I say joyful, I don't mean happy. I don't mean walking around with a big smile on my face. What I mean is alive, vital. You know, that like even... Even when things are sad, you're thinking it's life. You know, I'm here in life and I'm living life at this uh, very, um, you know, intense, aware level. And that's that's what you ask for. Have you always been a God guy? No, no. Oh, no. I was, you know, I was what I call a secular Jew. I was a Jew, but I didn't believe in Judaism. Uh, I was raised with it, but my parents didn't really believe in it. So I thought it was just hypocrisy. Um, I've told you, I think the story before when I was bar mitzvah, I got all these gifts thousands of dollars worth of jewelry and stuff like this. And one day I just took it and I threw it away because I didn't, I I was lying. I was, I didn't believe in it. And after that, I just thought I'm done. You know, I was a sophisticated modern coastal guy. And this is not what people talk about. Yeah, I went to Berkeley. Yep. And, uh, and I was an artist and I was working in Hollywood. I was working in publishing, you know, there was nobody around, but first going through my own, uh, you know, craziness, the own, my own trauma of childhood and youth. And I really had a breakdown in my 20s. Uh, I genuinely went, genuinely went nuts, I mean, in my 20s. Mm. And through a great psychiatrist who just recently died, who was the only mentor I ever had, mm. he cured me. He, I'm, I'm like the guy who was cured by a psychiatrist. I'm like the only wow, guy. Wow, you're the said, guy. Oh, the guy. <laughs> and it was only when I started to become happy that I started to think, well, now, if I follow this thought that is leading me to God, it won't be a crutch. When I was miserable, I would think, well, I'm not going to just grab onto mm. God as a crutch because then it's not real. Hmm. But once I started to think I'm, you know, I'm happy, then logic led me to God. Mm-hmm. Like you cannot. The one question that no one has ever been able to ask me is why should you care what's right and wrong if you don't believe in God? Why shouldn't you just get what you want? Or, or pretend you care and then get what you want. And that's what the Marquis de Sade said, the only honest atheist writer I ever read. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, I, there is no God. I'm going to rape people and kill them because I find that really fun. And, uh, and I thought, like, yeah, that, that makes sense. But it's also hell, you know. It's yeah, like, it would. Um, I mean, doing things out of the flow of God or universe or whatever it's very enslaving, but it's very attractive because 
do whatever you want. Especially in the moment. Yeah. You know? yeah. And I would absolutely, if, I mean, there's no governor on you except yourself. Right. <laughs> you know. I, but then you have this problem. If, if it's different to, to be kind to a child than it is to set a, a, a vagrant on fire, if those two things are different somehow, <laughs> then, then, hmm. then there's a level of meaning like above nature, right? Because there's nothing to say that's different. I mean, there's got to be some place where, where it's different, where it's good and bad. Because, you know, there's no, there's no logic that leads you to that necessarily. There's certainly no evolutionary idea that leads you to anything except self, um, you know, self-aggrandizement, self-profit. They say, oh, well, there's game theory and you're figuring this stuff out. But who cares? You know, I mean, if you turn your back... And I can get away with it. Why should I care? It's the stuff you do alone and the stuff you think about alone. I mean, oh, yeah, you know, (laughs) that's the stuff I found that when you have found happiness, you can turn the radio off in your car. Do it all the time. Yeah, Yeah. because you you're not wrestling (laughs) with the things that are happening inside your head because it's the things that you think about. Yeah. You know what I mean? That just keep playing these tapes over and over and over again. That is, you know, that is a a, it's a great metaphor because I I'm one of the few people, you know, who doesn't play the radio in the car. I love to be in the car and think and all this stuff. But you're right. There's so many people with the headsets plugged in and the phones in front of them. And I, yeah, of course, of course you do that. Of course you have to do it. And, and the thing is, we all know this in our hearts. We all know that there's something we're missing and it's not going to church and shouting Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's not necessarily, you know, uh, going to a, a soup line. It's some intense connection with life where the life that's in me is also out there somehow. You know, that exchange between this spiritual world, this level of meaning and me. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what so many of us are missing. And a great philosopher, uh, your, your writer was showing me, Rene Girard, who's a wonderful philosopher. And he said, once you get rid of that connection, then you've got two things. You've only got what you've got inside you. So if you say, I'm, you're, if I say I'm suddenly turned into a woman, then I'm suddenly a woman. And then you've got this confusing world outside that has to be explained by experts. So I, I'm a woman, but I can't leave my house until Anthony Fauci tells me to, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, but if you have a connection, this connection, suddenly you think like, no, no, wait a minute. I've got this. I understand this. You know, I'm going to need help. I'm going to need information. But I can live in this world because it's part, I'm part of it. I'm yeah. part of this world. You know? it's, um, have you ever lived on a farm? No. It's fascinating. Yeah, uh, I uh, I had a I have a ranch, and when my kids were really small, you know, we had sheep, we had we had goats, we had cattle and chicken and everything else, and all of a sudden, everything made sense. Nah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the scriptures started to make sense. We we literally went for the one lost sheep one time. <laughs> And we were so concerned about it. And, you know, the flock is fine. But that one lost that that was all our concern that night. And it's you don't have to explain. I saw a line on 1881 or 1883. Have you been watching that show? No. Oh, this is the the prequel to. uh, You would love it. It's poetic. Yeah, I hear it's great. Beautiful. I I do want to watch it. Beautifully written. Yeah. Um, But. at one point, one of the girls says to their mom, well, what do I do with a boy? And she said, honey, 
you've seen the animals, you've been on a farm long enough to know, you'll figure it out. <laughs> and it's, it's amazing how much of life is just explained just by watching nature. Uh-huh. Yep. You know? Yeah, well, that's, that's right. And, and also, and, and now that we're urban people, so many of us are urban people, and we have all these machines, it's so easy to get detached. Like, it's so easy not to know how detached you are, not just from nature, but just from the present moment. I didn't know? even, when I lived in New York, I hadn't seen the moon, and I didn't even realize Oh, this. that bothered me too. <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> you don't see the moon, right. and it, at least for me, I didn't recognize that. Until I left and I went out to the ranch and the stars and the moon. And I realized I'm so caught up in man's world. Yeah. I hadn't, you do, you sit around a fire, you do the same thing. No matter where you are, no matter what language you speak, you sit around the fire. And eventually somebody says, you know, man, we are small. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you yeah. don't have that experience right. by living in a city where all you could see, everything you see pretty much yeah. is what man made. Even Central Park, man made that. Right. You know, you you completely lose perspective. And, and we have. And you lose your sense. Of, the moon always bothered me specifically because you lose your sense of time. The only way we experience mm. time in the city is that you get older. You start to feel creaks and pain mm-hmm. and all this. But but there's this great wheel turning around constantly, everything in relationship with everything else. And just st- sitting for a moment, as you say, and saying, oh, oh, I get it. That's what I'm this little tiny speck. Yeah. In. You know, it, it really does remind, you know, it's, it's so much. It's about values, the, the way you uh, the, the moment that you're in, like, am I going to be kind to this person? Am I going to show my love to this to my wife? Am I going to do the, the right thing in this moment? And it's so much easier when you're into the flow of the world you know i mean it's it's not it's not mystical it's not like uh new age airy fairy craziness mm-hmm. it's simple it's actual just living it is actually just living and i think that um y- you know it, it it pains me to see what churches and church life have become uh it pains me to see that religion has become so much of a uh, a side in a battle you know i'm I'm on the Christian side and, you know, you're, you're one of those lefty, you know, and, and no, I actually do believe that you can sit next to someone that with whom you disagree. I have good, I have good friends that are atheists. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't mind them. They don't mind me. That's right. But I mean, I I think we we have great discussions. You have great conversations. I know. And that, that is, well, the other thing, the thing I love about Christianity is that people who actually think about it, no matter where they are on an IQ level, they have something interesting to offer offer, yeah Mm -hmm. and that's that's really interesting and that just shows how true it is because when you're talking about the truth you're interesting whether you're you know a professor or a street sweeper you're going to be an interesting guy for telling the truth if the last two years have taught us anything it's that you have to take control of your own health it is clear that you can't rely on the government or i don't even know the experts that even even my doctor my doctor was like, I can't. I really think this is right, but I can't because then I'll really you can't count on anybody but you. Well, I will tell you that there is something that you can do to stay in better health. Z stack is a specially formulated immune boosting supplement it includes zinc, uh, Qcertin, vitamin C, vitamin D. It was formulated by the guy who actually treated me for COVID. His name is Dr. Vladimir Zelenko. He's world-renowned doctor. President Trump is the guy who credited him 
with the um, early treatment uh, protocol uh, and his decision to take hydroxychloroquine. So he's been working and he came up with something called Z-Stack. It's scientifically formulated. It's kosher, GMP certified, and it's produced right here in the U.S. Um, I take it every day. And by taking Z-Stack daily, you are supercharging your immune system. Z-Stack, formulated to help combat any and all variants as well as the flu. So please start taking it now. Stay ahead of any potential future variants by preparing your immune system now. Order Z-Stack. You'll become part of the Z family and receive exclusive updates from Dr. Zenlenko on this pandemic. Go to ZStackLife.com slash Beck. ZStackLife.com slash Beck. Promo code Beck. So I've watched a couple of movies recently i don't remember what they were but they've quoted yates and hmm. shelley yeah and i did this with the i think it was the bronte sisters too i read was wuthering heights was yeah bronte. and i remember reading the bronte uh wuthering heights and i and i closed the book and i went wow there is something to these classics. <laughs> and every time I hear these guys, I think I should read them because every time I hear a quote, it's like just so, so great. Good. Yeah. Convince me I should read this. <laughs> you should read this? Yes. Oh, yeah. You should definitely read this because when you start to think about the stuff Jesus said, it's confusing. You know, Peter walks on water. And he starts to fall because he gets afraid. And Jesus says, oh, ye of little faith. And I always thought, really? Because I have a lot of faith and I can't walk in water at all. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, like I've never taken it. So what is he talking about? Why does he say that? You know, why does he say stuff like, like love your enemy? Like, uh, really? I mean, because we all, we all feel that stuff is good. You know, it's, it's kind mm-hmm. of become. And until you take it all away, until you take all the, the holiness and the piety and the theology and the church life until you take all that away and just sit with this man. You know, the reason I started writing this book is I said to my son, who's this brilliant guy, Oxford scholar, you know, I said to him, I don't understand the Sermon on the Mount. And I feel that it makes sense, but I just can't turn the lens and bring it into focus. And he said, that's because you're trying to understand a philosophy instead of trying to get to know a man. And mm. when I went back to, the, and it's hard to get to know Jesus, right? Because he's Jesus. You're sort of, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, oh, dude, you know. Yeah. But, but when I went back to these poets, I thought like, oh, they're inventing Jesus. They're reinventing him because he's gone out of the world. He's gone out of their life. And, and so they have to reinvent him from scratch. Coleridge knew they were doing it, but the rest of them were doing it almost by accident and just by talent and insight. And so it just brings that back. It brings you back into the things you've always known, the things you've always read. And suddenly they have meaning. Suddenly you understand why he said that to Peter. You understand. So what give me some examples out of this. Show me. <laughs> All right. Well, I, there, there's a wonderful, wonderful poem. Um, William Wordsworth. And You're one of these people that have, you know the poems by heart. I, don't, I wish I could memorize poems yeah, better. Yeah, yeah. But William Wordsworth and Coleridge had this year of, of talking together. They had both become distraught at the fact that this revolution in France, which was supposed to turn the world into paradise, it was like Woodstock, it was supposed to be, everything was going to be great. Instead, it became a world war, it became the terror and became a world war. And the two depressed geniuses out in the country, in the hill country. And one day, Coleridge walks over to see Wordsworth, and they begin a year-long collaboration, which produces a book of poetry called Lyrical Ballads, which changes English literature forever. And one of these poems, the last poem in it, is a, a poem by Wordsworth standing out by the ruins of this abbey. 
And it's very profound that he's standing by the ruins of the abbey because that's what's happened. Religion has mm-hmm. gone out of the world. And he thinks back on his past and he says, you know, in, as a child, I was connected to nature. I was, you know, nature, he says, heaven lies about us in our infancy. Heaven lies about us in our infancy. So he was like, there was something natural about being a child. But as he grew older, he lost that. He mm-hmm. lost it. And he starts to think about why and where it goes. And he talks about life as this kind of arc. And he says, he says we, we don't come from nothing. We come trailing clouds of glory from God who is our home. Mm. <laughs> and you think like, and then you think about Jesus saying, in order to get into the kingdom of heaven, you have to become a child, a child. again. You have to become like a child. And you realize that when we think back on our lives, we sometimes idealize our youth, even if it was... Mm-hmm. But the, the true childhood lies ahead of us, not behind us. You have to start to acquire, you know, that's why there's a sword when they throw Adam and Eve out of Eden. There's a sword whirling around mm-hmm. to keep them out. The heaven paradise lies ahead of you, not behind you. You have to acquire the wisdom to become simple again. You can't, mm. you can't acquire ignorance. You can't acquire stupidity. You're not going to become a babbling you know, child again. Mm-hmm. You're going to move forward until you get so deeply immersed in God that you become like a child again because mm. everything disappears. You know, there's a wonderful meme called the, uh, what is it called? The, the bell curve meme. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen it. No. On one side are just a small number of really, uh, real idiots <laughs> who see the world in a simple way. At the top are the majority of people who really see the complexity of life. And on the far side is the Jedi, you know, the wise right, man who right, sees right. it just like the idiot. Right, right. you know? and, and that's suddenly you realize, oh, that's what Jesus is talking about. That's why he wants you to. He says, he says, I want you to love your enemy, not to make the world. Jesus never says you're going to make the world a better place. Never, ever does he say you will make the world a better place. He says the world is going to suck. <laughs> I mean, that is basically what he yeah. tells you. But he says, love your enemy because then you will see what God sees because God makes the rain and the sun fall on the good and bad alike. And you'll be seen through God eyes. You'll be seen. That's very different than love your enemy or you're going to hell or love your enemy mm-hmm. or, and you'll be a good person or what the church has fallen for is love your enemy and then you'll make the world a better place. That's an actual mental shift. It's a way of seeing the world through God's eyes, through mm-hmm. what they call the Jesus mind, you know, when I think about it. And these poets had to make that stuff up. So they're saying it, and, and we are in this world, a godless world now too, so we have to kind of reinvent it too. For our world, we have to reinvent it in language that we understand. We have to reinvent it in ways that we understand. And then it all starts to make perfect sense. So these poems, the poems are beautiful. I mean, I, I know poem, poetry can be hard for people, and that's one of the reasons I try to explain it a little bit and sort of talk about it in simple terms. But the poems are so beautiful. And when you stop and think about, I think if, if you read this and then go back and read the poems, you'll say, oh, I, I see. You know, when, when Keats looks at a, at a Grecian urn and he says, beauty is truth and truth beauty, that is all you know in life and all you need to know. <laughs> you know, when you first hear that, you think like, yeah, I don't understand that. I don't get that. Mm-hmm. But once you start to think it through and once you understand the beauty he's talking about is not prettiness, it's not your taste and my taste, it's some essential connection between the facts of life and the spiritual underpinning of life, a, a, a collaboration between the, the imagination of man and the things that we see. Once you realize that that's the beauty he's talking about, you think, oh, beauty is truth. And, it's, and it becomes much more important. I have to say, there are things now that I don't, I used to look at everything, 
horror movies, you know, mm-hmm. dirty movies, whatever. You know, I just mm-hmm. look at anything because I wanted, I wanted it all. I wanted it all. But now, every now and again, I'll think, you know, I don't need that in my head anymore. I know it's there. I know there's the ugliness in the world, but I'm not going to sit and look at some guys. You mm-hmm. know? I mean, I'll look at Macbeth. I'll look at evil mm-hmm. that is full of wisdom and, and uh, life. But I'm not just going to watch some disgusting gore fest, you know, that doesn't mean anything because beauty is truth. And and things that, you know, that's what you're always looking for when you make those connections. And these poets make these connections at moments. They make these connections in moments where they give it to you so that you hit a line after, you know, a verse and suddenly you go like, wow, you know, I I get that. I feel it. And the reason I dealt with poetry instead of philosophers, because a lot of the philosophers at this time were thinking about the same stuff. It's not a philosophical question. It's a poetic question. It's an experience that you have. Like you can't, you can only communicate it through art. You can't communicate it by saying, by the kinds of things I'm saying now. I can't put that experience in your head. But you've experienced it. You've seen a movie or read a book and even a, or a poem, and suddenly you go like, oh, you know, everything kind of makes more sense than it did. I want that in my life as much as possible. I want it in my life every other second if I can. You know, I want to be in that mindset when I'm talking to you, which I kind of feel I am in this moment, it's like, yeah, you know, yeah. but I want it all the time. I want it walking down the street. I want to drive in. I want it, you know, in in the gym, all of it, because this is this is this life that uh, Keats, one of the great poets that I talk about here, he called life the veil of soul making. It is the place where you are created as a soul in life. And this is a guy who lived to be about 25, died horribly in obscurity, failed at everything he ever tried and wrote some of the greatest poetry, literally since Shakespeare. I mean, there was Shakespeare and there was Keats. And in between, there were guys who were not as good as they were. And, and, he, and he wasn't recognized in his time. Not really. Some some of his friends knew. Some of the people who knew him knew. But his reviews were constantly bad. Why? He was he was not a, an upper class guy. Politics was just like it is now. Wordsworth became a conservative and was canceled. I mean, he was, I mean, you talk about cancel culture. They, some of their great poems written about what a horrible person Wordsworth is because he became a conservative after the revolution. And though Keats was not really a, um, a political person at all, some of his friends were radicals. And so the conservative press came after him. And he was just ripped to pieces. Some of the worst reviews you will ever read. And the last book he wrote before he died he actually said he had trained to be a, uh, a surgeon, an apothecary. And he actually said, if this book doesn't make it, I'm just going to have to go back to apothecary school. It is one of the greatest works of literature that any human being has ever produced. And he died not knowing. I mean, and, and it wow. wasn't like it came out and everybody said, this is great. It was like when he died, people started to say, I think we missed, I think we missed something here. Mm. And it was only over time that his reputation grew. It's a, I mean, these are the stories I try to tell in the book because I didn't want it to just be me talking about poetry. I tried to tell the stories of these guys' lives in their important moments. Great stories. I mean, the story of how Frankenstein, how Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, one of the great stories of all time. You know? So tell that story because <laughs> I, I have a theory on Frankenstein that I wanted to ask you. Because I thought you would know, um, and it ties into to what's happening today, which is your theory in this book. Yes, we're very similar. So tell me about Frankenstein. Well, my my theory about Frankenstein is Mary Shelley said, and many people have said that it's about a man who tries to be God by making a human being. But that's not really true because people make human beings all the time. They mm. use the materials they have, and they make human beings. 
what Frankenstein, what Victor Frankenstein makes is he makes somebody without a woman. And Mary Shelley was this lovely, young, very feminine girl who grew up with a feminist mother, one of the first feminists, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, and a father who was a um, deep, real radical. They all hated marriage. Uh, They believed in free love. She ran off with the poet Percy Shelley, who believed in free love. And basically, she watched as free love destroyed every woman that she had ever met. You know, I mean, Shelley left his wife. His wife drowned herself with a child. You know, it was just like free love turned out to be a nightmare. You know, they thought everybody was going to be free. And one night, she and Shelley and Byron are in Italy because they've they've been basically thrown out of England. And they're all getting together. And it's a a summer, a really stormy summer, and there are lightning storms, and they're getting together in these, uh, in Byron's mansion, which is still there, the castle, uh, the uh, mansion Diodati, still out there. And uh, they would get together, and they would just talk philosophy. And Mary Shelley said, I never said anything, because I was just a girl, and they were these two brilliant, two of the great brilliant men of the age. And they're talking about bringing people back to life with electricity. And they're talking about the meaning of life. And they're talking all about all this stuff. And Mary Shelley's just sitting there. And one day, Byron, they re- oh, they're all reading to each other from a book of ghost stories. And Byron says, you know what? We're all going to write a ghost story. Every one of us is going to write a ghost story. And they all start off writing ghost stories. And Mary can't think of one. And she was a story. She liked telling stories. She liked writing. And she preferred it to, uh, she liked her daydreams. You know? And she can't think of one. And... They all gave up. They all of them, you know. Shelley didn't finish his. Byron didn't finish his. They all started and she and she was just embarrassed because she couldn't think of one. And then one day she's lying half asleep, and she has this vision of a man basically in a laboratory doing something. And she writes Frankenstein. And what Frankenstein is about is about getting rid of women. It's about science's attempt to get rid of the female body, basically. And I, I, talk, I, write, I show you how in the book, it's what she's talking about. And if you think about science fiction ever since, if you think about all the dystopian books like uh, Brave New World mm. and, and Fahrenheit 451 and uh, what's the one that the kids like, The Giver, which is a young mm-hmm. adult one. The one thing they all have to deal with is what do we do with the female body? Because it keeps creating people. And then it also cre- it also creates women who want to take care of those people and who don't really care as much about being in business and may not care as much mm-hmm. about uh, politics, but they really care about creating these souls, you know, not just bodies because mothers create souls right. as well. And if you think about science fiction, this was the invention of science fiction. Mary Shelley, she was, I think, 19 when she wrote Crazy. it. She invented science fiction. This is the invention of science fiction and, and science fiction horror. And if you think about it, like a lot of science fiction is about women's bodies. If you think about Carrie uh, having her period and you think about the exorcist as a mm-hmm. little girl basically coming into womanhood, uh, the matrix, uh, the matrix is a word that comes from womb basically. And it's by these two transgender guys who create a world in which you know, the world doesn't exist at all. It's just that there is no creativity. There's just people's minds. Women's bodies are, you know, even God, when he wanted to become a person, chose a mother. You know, he, he's God. He could have just said, you know, I'm just going to appear. Right. But he didn't. He chose a mother first. Mothers are at the center of human life. And the, the feminism that has convinced women that they are just mothers, that they are just homemakers and need to really get out in business. The, the feminism that says to businesses, you have to take care of women by giving them daycare instead of saying by giving, paying their husbands right. enough so that they can actually do Correct. the work that they were given to do. 
uh, it is, I think, has made women miserable. I mean, when when I before COVID, when I was speaking a lot in colleges, I would get up and I would say to say, young women look miserable to me. If I'm wrong, after I'm finished talking, get up. No. Never happened. Not once. Not once did a young woman get up and say, no, no, we're really thrilled with the way women's lives are going. So this moment, this moment when Byron says, let's all write a ghost story, and none of them does except for Mary Shelley, is transformative because it introduces one of the real philosophical problems of a godless world. What do we do about the creative force of a woman's body, which is not just the giving birth, it's also nurturing a child. I talk about this because Wordsworth writes a, po- a whole poem about the interchange between a mother and a child that she's nursing and how it gives them life. And this turns out scientifically to be correct. I mean, mm-hmm. it turns out that this interchange, this thing that happens between mothers and babies creates individuals. What do we do about that? And why do, why do we live in a society that not only doesn't honor it, but tells us that men can do it too. And that, uh, yes, if I suddenly decide I want to be a woman, I'm a woman. And if I want to, you know, be in women's sports and defeat every woman around me because I'm actually not a woman, I'm a man, that's all fine. When did we lose this sense that we were made in God's image, male and female, and this female part is half of the enterprise and and it's core to the enterprise. We have lost the respect, the awe that people felt about that when they were worshiping the Virgin Mary. So, but did we feel that way? Because, you know, women were property. Yep. You know, these two men are talking and I'm not going to say anything because. Right. You right. know what I mean? Yep. I'm just a woman. You know, it's an interesting thing. When you go back in, into the literature, it is always true that people who are stronger oh, hurt weaker people, right? Because we're mm-hmm. sinful and broken. Women have something men want, which is their bodies. And so there's just. It's just a recipe mm-hmm. for abuse and cruelty and, uh, and abuse of law. But when you go back and read the literature in the West, women are treated a lot differently than you think. Um, they're spoken about and thought about a lot differently than you think. If you look at the Bible, the first time they talk about uh, the Ten Commandments, the last commandment is, thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's wife or his house or his mule or anything that belongs to him. But the second time, hundreds of years later, when they write the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy, they say, thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's wife and thou shalt not cover his house and his mule. Right? Mm-hmm. Women are not looked at as property. There was this slow, slow advance. It took a long time because it's just too tempting to treat mm-hmm. them as property, to treat women as property. But there was this slow advance, really, from the very beginnings of Western civilization until now of women becoming people. And the era that I'm writing about, the Romantic era, this was when people started to say, well, you know, maybe women should be allowed to vote. Maybe women should have equal rights. Maybe this is when they started to think about that um, for reasons that I explain in the book, which are not actually just philosophical reasons. They're actually practical reasons. But... But that has been happening in Western civilization from the beginning. It just takes slow centuries right. to figure out. So I've got two questions, yeah. and I'm going to write the second one down. <laughs> um, but I want to go back to Frankenstein, and and I don't even know why I'm doing this because you have nailed it, and now mine seems really stupid. But, <laughs> but in reading Frankenstein, because I read it, I don't know, last year or something with my son as, as he was studying it in school, and I said we read it together. And, I've read it before. It's just fantastic. It's a great book. <laughs> fantastic book. Yeah. Um, uh, but I, what I was struck with, because I love futurists. Mm, yeah. And right now we're debating, you know, life. Right. What is life? Yep. You know, Ray Kurzweil said by 2030, 
you'll be able to download you into a computer. And I've said to him, that's not me. Ray. That's not me. Um, but they believe that. Yeah. And it's and I so I'm I'm thinking about those things and what's coming in AI and ASI. And and then I'm reading uh, Frankenstein. And I thought, we're living in very much the same age. Um, you know, God is on the ropes. All of these things are happening. Society is changing. The Industrial Revolution, everything is changing. And science is coming to the forefront where they say, look, if we hit electricity, the frog's legs move. And the frog's dead. And I thought they they really think they can bring people back to life at this point. Yeah, yeah. It's the same thing that we have going on right now. So isn't this isn't the tale of Frankenstein everything we're dealing with right now? It's it's everything. She was. I mean, I, I really believe. Um, T. S. Eliot said that a great poet in writing himself writes the world, and I think when you write the world, you also write the future. And I think Mary Shelley was like a prophet. I think mm-hmm. a lot of great writers are like prophets. And yeah, she saw exactly. I don't think she into yeah, 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 yeah. In, through her intellect yeah, yeah. she vi- envisioned where everything. Well, she was saw going. man, yeah. and man just repeats himself it, over and, and over and, and over the, again. And the thing is, the threat that we're facing from you know obviously science is a great glorious gift. I mean, mm-hmm. if it had only kept children from mm-hmm. dying, it would be a great glorious gift. Mm-hmm. It's the science I'm worried about. It doesn't matter what bother me when people say follow science, which means experimentation and getting things wrong mm-hmm. and correcting things. When they say follow the science, I think I'm in the Wizard of Oz because mm-hmm. there is no the science. The science is an idol. And the idol is that there is something, that, that there is a way to solve the problems of humanity without eliminating humanity itself. And that's a real problem. Um, that's what I think Mary Shelley saw, that if you could, if you can get, if you can get rid of women, I mean, women are the, are the obstacle because they are this consequence for uh, our sexual urges. They create consequences for that. Uh, they create new life, which is just this out of control thing. You know, they, they are needed to create souls uh, when we want everybody to be working on the machine. We want everybody to be part of this you know, machine economy uh, and consume, you, know, you should be consuming things. You know, you should be buying stuff. You know, the question is, how are we going to go forward and remain human beings? So the question is not how are we going to solve the problems of humanity? It's how are we going to go forward as human beings. And there are a lot of people now saying, no, we shouldn't do that. I mean, this guy, Huval Harari, wrote a book called Homo Deus. You know? Terrifying. Yeah, it's terrifying. Terrifying. He says, says, it doesn't matter what you think. And, And, you know, Christians believe they don't believe there's one end of the world they believe there's two ends of the world mm-hmm. there's one for the saved and there's one for the salvation impaired right you know and i think mm-hmm. and i think that world that mechanical world in which we become like unto gods but we lose our humanity um is the world that you and i are trying to avoid you know when i when i talk about all the books and movies that grow out of Frankenstein. One of them that I talk about is The Terminator. And The Terminator is about a world where the machines rule, but a hero is is born. So what do they do? They go back to kill his mother. They go back to, they send somebody back to kill his mm. mother. They don't kill him. They go back to kill his mother. And who is his mother? And that first Terminator, the genius of that first movie, is she's just a girl. She's just a girl. She's not a muscle person. She's not mm. a hero. Mm. She's nothing. She's just a girl, wants to get her hair done, wants to have dates, wants to go out and party. It is her girlness 
that they want to kill. And I think that when, when we look at this, we have to start to say, well, wait a minute. If, if now we understand that the, the stone that was thrown away, women, maybe one of the cornerstones of the temple, maybe we should start to think about what, how we treat the human body and how we solve the problems of birth and how we solve the problems of sex and sexuality. Uh, th- those are things that maybe Christians should be thinking about without saying, you know, you're gay, so I don't like you or you know, right, you know, right. all, the, all the kind of nonsense that it all boils down to uh, when you're not really thinking it through. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I agree with you. I think that we are headed for a machine-like world but not all of us. Some of us are going to opt out. And I think that that is where the wisdom lies. So I asked Ray Kurzweil, because um, he, was, he was talking about, you know, chips and implants and upgrades. Yeah. You know, basically what Stephen Hawking said would be the end of the Homo sapien <laughs> right. by 2050. And, um, you know, now you have Elon Musk with his Neuralink. And I asked Ray, what happens to those people who don't, want an upgrade and he looked at me so puzzled they don't think things through and he looked at me and he said why wouldn't somebody want that and i said i don't know they like the way they are they're happy they 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 want to search for things on their own and um uh he said well that no everybody will get an upgrade and i said again what happens to those who don't want one and he said well i can't imagine anyone that would want to deny this to their kids and everything else but they would have to live they'd have to be separate from society that's brave new world right yeah Yeah, he said because you won't be able to understand what we're saying because we'll have all this knowledge running through our heads you won't be able to understand you will be a detriment to all of society. Yeah, I, I think, I, you know, I think that there is something to that. And I think, you know, when I'm when I say that you have to go forward uh, to go back, that you, in order to get back to your childhood, you have to move ahead. This isn't true of just individuals, it's true of the human race as well. We're not going to get rid of science. We're not going to say, oh, yeah, let no. the kids die. And, you know, <laughs> we yeah. don't need. No, of course, we want to. We just want to guide it in a human fashion. That is not that. That is why I, I talk about the last part of this book. Only only part of the book is about the romantics. The last part is about Jesus. And it's about let's re-understand. It's not changing anything he said. And it's not naturalizing what he said. He's the son of God. He is exactly mm-hmm. who he said he was, you know, but it's just kind of trying to understand what he says. And I say that we can only create a machine universe, but he actually has a science that is very humanizing. And I think there is a version, there may even be a version of upgrades that is more humanizing, that gives us more wisdom, that gives us more humanity. But, but the thing is, that's not going to be its first manifestation. Its first manifestation is going to be like what we have now. These, these phones, look, I love the fact that I can get any piece of literature in the world on this thing in my pocket. That's a mm-hmm. wonderful, wonderful thing. I don't so much love the fact that it keeps saying, you know, like, look at this. This will make you angry. Look at this. This will, You want to buy this. Mm-hmm. You know, that's yeah. the part I don't like. So, you know, the, the idea that you can choose between those things, they always want to tell you that you take one thing, you get the other. But I don't think that's true. I think that there is a version of the future uh, that is a human version. And I think some of us are going to opt for that. And we may be truly, truly hunted for it. I mean, we're being hunted oh, I now. Think, yeah, <laughs> I know? think I think that's without a doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. You. um you know, does this pattern that we're in right now, 
you in your book, you talk about how the French Revolution. Yeah. But then you look at 1930s and you look at now and it's all driving towards the same thing. Yeah. And there is no human element to it because we, each time they're looking at the collective, not the individual. Yeah. And God, you know, the, the Tower of Babel story. Nebuchadnezzar says, let us build bricks. Okay. Well, God makes stones. He makes all of us different. Yeah. He's saying, let's, let's make everybody the same. Yeah. And, uh, and then we can do anything. We can build a tower to the sky. Right. Um, that, that's not, that's man. That's, that's right. man. Yes. God says the individual. Man in these darker periods. Why? <laughs> Why? Well, you know, one of the, one of the, Best lines I ever read about world. You know, I, I I was fascinated by World War One. I. I know you were too. It's just, and you read book after book, and at the end of reading twenty twenty five books, you think like, how did it begin again? Like, why did they just wipe Europe off off the face yeah, of the earth? Yeah. Yeah. And and Peggy Noonan wrote a column about it once, where she asked somebody that question. And he said, "There's just something wrong with people." And she said, that's the best definition of the original sin I've ever heard, you know, and it, it is, there's something wrong with us. There's something we are not what we're supposed to be, uh, you know, which is why the world is so tragic and hilarious at the same time. We're kind of like a, a guy in a tuxedo who falls in a puddle. You know, it's kind of mm-hmm. funny, you know, uh, and and so y- you say you, you say the th- same things happen again and again. That's an effect of trauma. And I think maybe the fall of man was a a trauma. You know, everybody has trauma in their lives. And you find yourself repeating traumatic patterns. And mental health is when you can break those patterns and start to do new things Uh and start to see new things. But you're still going to have a personality. You're still going to do certain things. You know, you're not about to be, you know, you're not about to become a ballet dancer. I'm not about to become a baseball player. You know, we are are what we are. And so... You repeat those patterns, but you repeat them in a way that grows and becomes more human. I do some of the same thing. I'm still writing novels. I'm still writing, you know, a writer and and still have my personality. But I've become, I think, more human. And so these patterns are going to repeat. But the one thing we can be sure of is that people who go down the wrong road are going to see bliss in front of them, but they're going to find misery. And when that misery becomes too intense, things break. And it's whether, you know, you're at the pinnacle of of human culture in 1914 and you think like "Eh, let's go defend belgium and wipe everybody kill everybody Uh, or or whether it's like some horrible uh war or whether it's a religious revival and it happens peacefully people come back from the brink not everybody but some people come back from the brink and that's a that's part of the human pattern too there is something in us that remembers there's something in us that remembers who we're supposed to be and when you are the guy in the room who remembers and people start beating you up and picking on you or shouting crucify him or get off Twitter or whatever it is they, they want to mm-hmm. do, you're just going to have to have courage. There's nothing else for it. There's nothing else for it but to say, you know, I'm not going to budge. I'm going, I'm going down this road. And, you know, I do believe, I think you believe that God walks with you, you know, and that uh, it, it, it eases the, the loneliness and the pain and the persecution, but, but it doesn't take away the tragedy of life. Life is very tragic, and that's why I think uh, we, have the, we cling to the resurrection and the promise mm-hmm. that there is some, some version of life that maybe mm-hmm. is, is different. Uh, it makes 
the walk with him makes it worthwhile. I remember because I have a really, I have a, I have a different relationship with the Lord. He tells me stuff, and I'm always like, oh. Not that. You know what I mean? Not. No. That's how I know it's from God. It's never something I want. It's always something that I was like, oh. You've got to be kidding me. Yeah. I'm not that guy. Okay. No. Um, And uh, and I remember at one point um, I said, and I meant it, No. I'm not doing, no, I am not doing that. And I remember in my prayer hearing, very kind, very kind, very gentle. It's okay. I'll find someone else. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, I realized I won't be who he wants me to be. And and I don't want to be left behind. I don't want to be left behind. Not that I would go to hell or anything no, else. No, no, but yeah. I don't. I want to be with him. And it's. I don't think people who who haven't had a religious experience yeah. or a spiritual experience. I don't think they get that. But all of us, you know, this is the wonderful thing about that words with poem I was talking about. That heaven lies about us in our infancy. I don't think there's a person on earth who does not know that there is a person he was made to be that he isn't. You know, I think every single person knows that, that he, there's a person he was made to be. I disagree. Really? As, a, as a recovering alcoholic, okay. one of the biggest problems was of really doing the soul searching. Yeah. I mean, when you are out, I had to take everything I thought I knew and take it out and examine it right. and then look at it and then atone for it and whatever else, whatever was in there. And then pick them up back on the table and put that one back in because I understand it now. Pick this one and put it in. But if they conflict, I got to take them both out because something's not right. Uh Okay. Yeah. And I remember before I started that, I thought there's nothing inside of me. I am. I'm just my collection of experiences and you know, the bad kind of makes me who I am. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm not sure there's something in there. Huh. And I, I think that's unfortunately common. You're afraid to look in because it's hard to oh, change. Oh, I don't and it's, deny that. Yeah. And it's, you're afraid, too, that maybe this is as good as it gets. I completely agree with that description. One of the things that I know so many artists who are afraid to get help for their problems because they're afraid their talent will go away. Yeah. And, you know, of course, it all gets better. Yeah, it all gets better. But but I still I still believe that in inside everybody, if you interrogated them, you had to know that that alcoholic Glenn was not the Glenn. Yeah. I I knew that that was not the right path. Right. For me. Yeah. I mean, because that when I look back, like I, I was miserable in my youth. And for a long time, I had that idea. Oh, well, I'm an intellectual, so I, I should be. Miserable. You know, it's hip to be miserable when you're young and intellectual. Right? But I knew I knew you are not supposed to be like this. This is not the way you're supposed to We're be. We're not supposed to be miserable. And, and, there, and, there, and I knew there was a me that had been made that I didn't have, you know. And that's still true, but at least I feel now I'm walking in that direction all yeah. the time, you know, which is just a, a, a joyful experience in, in and of itself. And it's weird that, like Viktor Frankl, it's very strange that 
even as he said, sitting on the cart with a stack of dead bodies, a dead body, and I take an old sandwich from my pocket and I'm eating it, and I can just disappear. I'm not, I become numb until I realize nothing can destroy my happiness except for me. Yeah, yeah. You know, when you're singing in the prison and they're torturing you, that's, that's a that's a good place to be. That, I mean, that, I love that book. And I, there's that the, the ill, sick woman who looks out at the beautiful branch. Outside. Yeah. That's the level of life I'm talking about. Yeah, that, that, is, that would be fantastic. I, I know. And I think I think that shows you're not supposed to be miserable. That's right. Things can be the worst. But yeah, you, you that's a choice of yours. But and, you know, I always compare it to a, a movie. You're watching a movie or whatever, you know, Downton Abbey or whatever, and, and somebody mm-hmm. dies and you're sitting there and you're weeping and you're weeping and you're weeping. And then you turn off the TV and you say, that was great. I love that. You know, life has that element to it that mm-hmm. like, you're, you know, it, it's it's incredibly painful. Some of life is just incredibly. Uh, That's some of the most beautiful stuff. But it's so, but it's beautiful. Nobody wants to suffer, but everybody knows that suffering does something, you know, grand. Beautiful. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And it's like it's a it's a strange system, but it is the system. And and living at that level every, every day, you're even trying to do it. You're having a better day, you know. So where are we? Uh, what what's coming yeah what do you i mean this cancel culture is getting scary it's scary i mean one one of the one of the reasons i always make jokes about you because sometimes i feel like you and i are like mirror images like i always think like you you always think like i can connect these dots to a disaster and i always think yeah but you know i can connect the dots yeah you know what's really weird smiling and frowning face of theater you know what's really weird is i always say I'm a guy you do not want to be on the Titanic with until we hit the iceberg. Because right. I'm telling you, there's not enough lifeboats if we hit you something. Know, I'm the guy going, it could work out. Yeah. But as soon as we hit that ice, it's I'm true. good. It's I'm like, true. we're going to make it. I, Get in the lifeboat. Let's go. I always say the pessimists are always right eventually. You know? Yeah. 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 Um, you, you know, uh, you'll kill me for saying that, but I, I actually believe that the good guys are on the offensive now. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, and, and oh. this is this is a wonderful thing. And it's like, you know, it, it made me I was watching. I guess we're all watching Joe Rogan take it. He's the latest guy on the yeah. chopping block. And, and it pained me to watch him try to apologize uh, for some of the things he had said, not because I, I, I understood where he was coming from. He used the racial slur and he thought that was not. But we know they don't care. Mm-hmm. They don't care. You know, they say black lives matter and then they pull funding for the police and thousands of black lives. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, I just want to say, I don't believe there is such a thing as a black life. I mean, I think there's, yeah. there's, you know, there's life. There's, there's life. Yeah. And and, you know, it pains me to see him apologize. But it also showed me that he actually has a conscience. Yeah. It's the people who are attacking him. So I, don't have I thought the yeah. same thing. I'm yeah. watching him and I was like, he's sincere. Right. He is sincere. But they don't care. Um, yeah, they don't care. Yeah. Um, and the debate is, should you apologize or not? And I feel pretty alone on this that he was he. It's one thing to have an epiphany. And that's what he had. Right. You know, gosh, I'm I'm watching this and this is making me uncomfortable. I that I haven't done that in a long time, but this was really bad and I don't, I'm not that guy. Right. Okay? That's an epiphany. The apology 
Don't ever apologize to people who don't listen to I you. I agree with you. Don't, don't, don't you, you don't apologize to people who were never offended. Yeah. They weren't offended. Yep. The people who put that tape together, I can tell you they put that tape together with glee. <laughs> with glee. <laughs> right? No, morality depends on context. You know, the thing is, you cannot... You cannot do the right thing at the wrong time. You have right. to do the right thing at the right time. And to apologize to people who really don't care and are just trying to advance cancel culture is wrong. I but mean, what how you really would, should say How is, would Christ have handled that? I mean, he wouldn't have yeah. been using the N-word, so. Yeah. But. <laughs> well, we, we, we kind of know because they canceled him, you know? I mean, like, we know that he just, you know, they said, are you saying these things? And he said, that's what, you know, you said it. And, and he just stood there. And, and the thing is, if you're not afraid, that, I mean, that is the lesson of Christ. Don't be uh, afraid. It's like, if you're not afraid, they really have no power over you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to have some trust that it's going to be all right, that you're going to make it through. But, you know. I got I got kicked out of Hollywood. My, my my leftist agent keeps telling me, no, 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 that's not what you, <laughs> he took this book. He Liar. Read, he, he read this book. He loved this book. My, this this is my, book? Yeah. This is my, my Hollywood agent. I, I just have, may I just read this? Yeah. Is, okay. This is when Christmas comes. Yeah. And I just have to read the inscription that you wrote to me. Because I wrote the Christmas sweater a long time ago. You wrote to Glenn, sweaters in nice or nice and all. But the true meaning of Christmas is murder. <laughs> I did think of you because you wrote that wonderful book. You know, and I thought, like, yeah, but now you don't have to kill me. It's hysterical. But, but my my agent loves this book and he sent it out to everywhere. And he called me up and he said, I can't understand. It. I haven't got even a nibble. And I said, well. You know, I think I'm persona non grata. Yeah, I'm. I'm absolutely sure. No, no, no. It's not that. He said they mention it, but it's not that. You know. But But the thing is. You can't be afraid of that. I mean, it, it really, I mean, is that really what it is that you're not going to be in Hollywood, that, you know, you're not going to get to write some, you know, some movie? Yeah. That's not what my life is about. My life is what we started talking about. My life is trying to tell the truth beautifully. That is what, you know, that is what I've, I've tried to do. That's what I think it was given to me to try to do. Boy, what a beautiful mantra to have that's the meaning of your life is to tell the truth beautifully no hollywood producer can stop me from doing that wow. and so they don't have they, they can't take anything from me you know i mean like I, you know I, I had to sell my house after that happened my my income went from here to here in a very short period of time i never even thought i mean i i i, I thought about it obviously i had to take care of myself but i didn't like sit and go like oh boohoo i lost my hollywood career i thought no I'm, I'm saying what i have to say i'm i'm doing the right thing i know i'm doing the right right thing and if i have to live a little bit you know differently differently i can do that I, you know if, if that's what you're worried about that's why jesus says you can't serve god and money it's not because mm-hmm. money is icky mm-hmm. it's because you know if you put money first you're going to make the wrong decisions and the thing is glenn i know a lot of hollywood writers who went the other way a lot of them and they are, there's something about them that have, I know the price they paid is bigger than the price I paid. I know it is. I can tell by the look in their eyes. I can tell by the way they talk about themselves. I can tell by the way they think about life. You know, you just have to, if you're not afraid of these guys, they really don't have as much power over you as, as you think. And I think that that's what bothers you about a Joe Rogan apologizing. You wonder, like... You know, I hope he's being sincere, but you also wonder, is he thinking, well, you know, I'm making a lot of money here. And if I lose Spotify, you know, um, I'm not accusing him of anything. I don't know his yeah, heart yeah, at yeah. all, but I'm, I'm just saying. I, I, you know. I watched it and he may be thinking some of that. That may play a role, but he seemed. 
you know, people misjudge people all the time. If Donald Trump runs again, why would people say he's running? Yeah. <laughs> because he's an egomaniac. Right. He can't leave it alone. Yeah. I sat with him over dinner a couple months ago, and uh, he said, this is such a mess. He said, this is such a mess. Hmm. He said, and I fixed it. I had it fixed. We were on the right track. Hmm. And he said, uh, and then he just sat there for a while, and I'm just eating my food. And he says, uh, I look at all the people. He said, what I went through was hell. But I look at all the people who weren't president, but stood up for me Hmm. when they were just raked over the coals. He said, I promised them I would fix it. And now it's broken. I think of them. They were loyal to me. You know how much he appreciates yeah, loyalty. He does appreciate He's loyalty. like, they were loyal to me. Yeah. How can I not be loyal back to them? You know, it, it's a really interesting thing because I, you know, I voted for Trump twice and I, I, I thought... I was just the other day thinking about what an incredibly successful presidency he had oh, yeah. until, until COVID hit. But I had real problems with his comportment, with his treatment of people. Yeah, me his, too. His language. And, and I thought, well, why does it take a guy like that to do the right thing? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, like, he, he's not he's not the greatest genius who ever lived. If he governed that well, it must be easier than others make it work. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I mean... I mean I think it's just don't listen to the experts. It's don't listen to the experts. It's don't listen to the elite. And it's also withstand. He had that lizard skin that helped him withstand cancel culture. And and this is the thing, you know, people say, well, there's cancel culture on the right and there's cancel culture on the left. No, there's not. Cancel culture is an outgrowth of the leftist strategy of silencing the opposition by calling them hateful. That's all it is. That is what that is the definition of cancel culture. It's Saul Alinsky. And it is the definition. And I hate it when people say, well, right wingers, you know, fire people for saying things. And yeah, there's always going to be that. If you worked for me and you said something horrific and hateful, I might well fire you for saying something horrific and hateful. But they have transformed all disagreement into hatefulness. Mm -hmm. And all the words they use, racist, white supremacist, phobic, this, phobic, that. All of them, they just mean shut up. That, you know, just shut up and sit down. You know, that, and, and like, I think, that, I think that that's where cancel culture comes from. So it, it's like you can distinguish between a guy who's done something genuinely horrible, like every single person at CNN. <laughs> they all, Is that crazy? <laughs> it's nuts. It's crazy. <laughs> it's like I worked there. I, I wasn't having an affair with anybody. What happened? Am I that ugly? You really? really? I mean, missed, you missed the boat. Huh? I know. I could have walked out with, what did it have? Cuomo walk out with $20 million? I just needed some information about the boss. <laughs> Gosh, it's crazy. Uh, yeah, but I mean, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, it, it, they have made it so that it takes a guy like Trump just to get something done. I mean, mm-hmm. they, when you think of the effort that was put into destroying him, I mean, it was a huge effort. I mean, I, it was uh, a gl- we know now yeah. it was a global yeah. effort. Yeah. I mean, th- th- there were, you know, they came out and they even said it, you know, as a business, we came out and we pooled our resources together. You did what? Yeah. You yeah. did what? Uh, and they're not ashamed of it. No, and they knocked him, they knocked the president of the United States off social media. 
which in my view ought to be illegal. I mean, they shouldn't oh, yeah. be. <laughs> you know, yeah. they they uh, silenced information about Hunter Biden. They lied about his Russian connections. They did all this stuff. And like, and again, he made it. He often made it hard to defend him by the way he behaved. But when you look at, you know, I I, I can just list the stuff he did. The economy that lifted all boats, mm-hmm. getting rid of ISIS. People forget about that. Mm-hmm. That ISIS the caliphate was the size of Ohio, yeah. and he got rid of it, turning our attention to China, which nobody else was doing. Uh, the Middle East peace talks. Which he actually saw, he came up did. with a solution, you know. I'm like, I mean, <laughs> he might be the Antichrist, not for any of the other reasons, but I don't think this was supposed to happen. And it was all by just saying, let's not do what the yeah, you know, let's not do what the State Department I, says to do. And you know, I, I've met, I've met a lot of guys from the State Department. They are the smartest, stupidest people I have ever met. There, every they one of them, are. they're smart, they're well read, they're they're nice. I like them, you mm-hmm. know. But they say things, the words that come out of your mouth, and you think like. No, <laughs> that's not. That, no, no. You know? It's crazy. And it's like the guy, the guy at the end of the bar with his loud mouth has more sense in his head. We know because he was president what, and he actually did I know. the job. And I think that was his secret was yeah. he's got an incredible gut on him. Huh. You know, don't yeah. you think? Yeah. He yeah, says yeah. he's got the like a. No, we're going this way. Yep. yep. And stuff that even I thought. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> It works out. Yeah. I don't know how, but he's got a great gut on him. Um, and he shockingly listens to all sides. That, that is interesting. I you feel, didn't know that? I, I've heard that. And yeah. I've heard that he reads a lot. Which yeah. I, I, I don't know about that. Yeah, I mean, I don't maybe I don't yeah. have any information yeah. that he doesn't. But I know he listens. I mean, he will. He talked to me about his China policy for like 25 minutes. Mm. And then he had the boss to say, which I said, this is why I like you. We disagree on trade barriers. And I said, look, China is a different thing. I agree with that. But trade barriers, and I made a case against trade barriers, and he made his case for, and I came back, and then he came back, and then I came back. And he was like, you know what, Clyde? I just got to tell you the truth. I love trade barriers. (laughs) I'm going to do him. <laughs> I'm like, thank you. You know, no, he didn't come my way at all. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But he listens to everybody. I, I, I have to say my feeling, my political instinct, and it could be wrong because I didn't see him coming at all, um, is that he should anoint somebody else to run for president. I don't know if he's got the, you know, ego to, yeah. to do that. He was the man of the moment. He broke the China shop. He was the bull in the China shop and he broke the China. Any Republican who does not realize that they have to take a lesson from him is done, is finished. You know, the, the guys who, you know, f- try to appease the left, they're finished. Glenn Youngkin, a great example in Virginia. Oh. He caught on. He started to stand up to the teachers, uh, to the mm-hmm. school boards and all this stuff. He's he's a moderate guy. He's, you know, I, what does Jim Acosta call him? Stalin or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's, like, he's like a moderate Republican. But he understands that part of this fight is a cultural fight. And that was Trump's great genius that, it, you know, it's not it's it's partly it's about taxes and regulations and strong defense. All those things are matter. But it also matters that you stop telling people that their country stinks, that their God stinks, that they're racist, that they're sexist, that their natural opinions stink, that their that their natural their marriage doesn't matter, that women don't need a man. You know, all the stuff that they said, you've got to st- stop. You are ruining the world. You are actually ruining the world by doing that. And Trump is the only one who actually said, you know what? <laughs> like, no, I'm going to embrace the flag. I'm going to talk about God. I'm going to say abortion. You know. 
Wait, did, I know. Did anybody stand up at the March for Life before he did? Did any president no. ever did? I mean, you know. And crazy, right? I mean, he did stuff that I was like, ah, he's just he's saying that he's not going to actually do that. There's no way he's going to do that. And then he did it. And I you're know, like, I know what happened. And any Republican who did not hear that call and some of them, you can see they didn't hear it. And, and they, it's just not in their nature. They just haven't got that thing. In yeah. Them. But I think DeSantis has got it. I think he does. Uh, and, I, you know, but I think Trump is getting up there. I'm tired of being governed by 80 year old men. You know, I think yeah. it's time it's time to let a new generation come in. If I were Trump. I think what I would do is, you know what? This is my guy, DeSantis. He's going to go forward and and then have that kind of influence yeah. on the White House that you have behind the throne. I think he did the thing that he was sent to do. But I could be wrong. You know, yeah, it's just, I know. I, I've stopped, uh, you know, 2016, I was against him. I was wrong. Uh, 2020, I thought he was going to win. I was wrong. Mm. Uh, and I was wrong. And... God was right both times. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. That happened. And I'm like, there's no way. Yeah. There's no way. Mm, I was wrong on that. Joe Biden being elected is turning out exactly the way I thought it yeah. would. But I didn't see that. That was a trigger. Mm. It was kind of like they were hiding and everybody's like, yeah, I know they're not telling the truth. But, you know, it's going to be fine. You know, <laughs> And now we're seeing it, and and people who are not don't agree with me are like, okay, all right, whoa, yep, this yep. is way out of line. You line. know, you know, it's really interesting. I I was in New York just before Christmas, and I was going to parties, a lot of which got canceled because Omicron was on the rise, and I was, you know, rolling. But a lot of you know some of these parties, literary parties, have a lot of leftists in them. And for the last during the Trump years, I would go to these parties, and people would shun me. I mean, they would kind of not want to be seen with me. All of a sudden, they were coming up to me and said, you know, I'm starting to sound a little bit like you, you know, <laughs> so, you yeah. know? and I think like, you know, the, the thing is leftism offers virtue and virtue because we don't have it. We want it, you know, mm-hmm. because we know we're sinful. We know we're broken. And somebody says, we're going to make everything equal. Everything's going to be nice. Everything's going to be fair. We think like, oh, I want to be that way. It just doesn't work. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't work. So they get elected because they offer virtue. The right doesn't get elected, even though everything they do actually works because they don't talk morally. And that's the funny thing about Trump. People talk about his immoral life, but he spoke in moral terms. Make America Great Again, MAGA, was a, a moral movement, you know, and that's and that's why uh, they hated him so much, because <laughs> he's black and white. He, yeah. There's a right and wrong. There's a right and wrong. And, and like, I think that um, I think he has. Cha- I, I think my my idea, Glenn, is that we're at the end of something. And at the end of something, there's going to be chaos. We're at the end of the uh, post-war era, basically. We're mm-hmm. at the end of the post-Cold War era. But I think we're even at the end of the post-war era. A lot of the, yeah, I think mm-hmm. a, a lot of the people whom Trump drove crazy, you know, those commentators mm-hmm. who were important and now were just kind of off in the mm-hmm. wilderness babbling about mm-hmm. who knows what, you know. I, I think they couldn't accept that no, it's time for a new thing. And, and Trump, like you said, in his gut, he understood that. Yeah, I think. I think you're right. I, you know, I, I said in 2016, we're at the end of the progressive era. Mm. What started 100 yeah. years ago, now comes the choice and the transition. You know what I mean? We're either going to go mm-hmm. where they wanted us yep. to go or we're going to push back. But a, I hate to use this word, but a reset is coming. Mm, I agree. Hopefully I agree. it's back to factory settings. But, <laughs> uh, it is always good to see it's you. It's great to see I, you. I, I didn't even use a single question I had oh, for oh. you. I, I want you to come back because I want to talk about, uh, talk 
to talk to you about your dad. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, your yeah. dad's a legend. Yeah. Um, one of the great. That's how that's how I recognize broadcasting talent. I can see. Broad, I have to say, I have a knack. You know, I see people come along and I know exactly who's going to make it in the broadcasting world. He was he was a great broadcaster. Yeah. 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 All right. Come back. <laughs> Thank you. Try. Always. God bless. Just a reminder, I'd love you to rate and subscribe to the podcast and pass this on to a friend so it can be discovered by other people. 